0: Federal regulations specify that informed consent can be waived when research involves no more than minimal risk to participants and when the waiver won't adversely affect the rights of participants and is necessary for carrying out the trial. However, when left to define ambiguous terms, institutional review boards tend to err on the side of caution and require informed consent even when doing so could jeopardize study results. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Ash executive director of the Center for Healthcare Innovation at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ash has co-authored a perspective article on how requiring informed consent when it's not necessary to protect research participants can undermine a trial's validity. Dr. Ash, why do you think IRBs have typically been so conservative when it comes to interpreting the common rule, even when ethicists have consistently found that waiving consent can be acceptable?
1: Yes, I think that is the central question, or at least it's a barrier that we might want to overcome. We desperately need research protections. We need to protect participants from the kind of research that might harm them or their rights, and so IRBs have an essential role in the research process, particularly because they can be far more objective than the investigators themselves. I do think, though, that some of the very well-meaning, well-intentioned, and necessary protections that get imposed by and created by IRBs sometimes get overgeneralized to settings where they don't really apply. So I think the kinds of approaches we would take to evaluating, for example, a clinical trial of drug A versus drug B make you think that the process of consent doesn't create a problem because we have a theory about the delivery of drugs and their mechanism of action that makes us think that if you agree to participate in a trial, and the drug works in you, then we can generalize that that's likely to work for the people who don't agree to participate in the trial. We don't think that there's going to be something fundamentally different about how the physiology works in people who agree or don't agree to participate in a trial. But so much of the exciting research being done in health systems these days, I think, aims to improve cancer screening or medication adherence or weight loss. And success in these trials probably has a lot to do with participants' intrinsic motivations. And so the result is that. We were testing interventions in a bunch of people who were motivated enough to agree to a trial, and their outcomes might not really tell us about the people we most wanted to reach, who are typically the people who might not enter a trial. So what I'm saying is I think that the IRBs, often in a very well-meaning way, might end up overgeneralizing their processes from situations where consent doesn't matter so much to the validity of a trial to trials where consent does make a difference in the validity of a trial.
0: So in your article, you present a hypothetical example of health systems that are evaluating strategies for encouraging patients to undergo colorectal cancer screening. Can you give us some real-life examples of situations where requiring patient consent for low-risk research can do more harm than good?
1: Sure. And actually, the examples were only slightly hypothetical. I think the examples of different trials to encourage colorectal cancer screening or any kind of cancer screening, those are going on all the time. I think another example are trials, many of which I participated in, that relate to improving medication adherence, right? If we're doing a trial to increase adherence to the medication that patients' doctors have already prescribed to them, what's the potential harm in that that's incremental to the harm that those medications might already risk? So should you really have to consent people to engage in a study about reminder messages or electronic pill bottles that might monitor their adherence? Those are really relatively low-risk interventions, but they might be done at a randomized controlled trial and you're measuring outcomes and they look like any other kind of clinical research, but is there really any incremental risk to that? All that trial is trying to do is to get people to take the medicines that were already prescribed. Once you start requiring consent there, which I think is debatable, we wouldn't have written the article if we thought that this was a no-brainer. Once you start imposing consent processes on relatively low-risk or maybe even no-risk processes, then you end up with a very selected group that you're studying and may not actually learn very much about what you want to know about the general population.
0: Another issue that you bring up in your article is the perhaps excessive focus on the distinction between research and quality improvement. How have health system leaders and IRBs defined the difference between research and quality improvement, and where do you think that boundary should be going forward?
1: That is a real sort of boogeyman of this whole enterprise. I don't know where to put that to boundary, and maybe I'm part of the problem, but I think that is fundamentally the problem. I think there is much less of a real distinction between quality improvement in research than many of our regulatory processes would seem to suggest. So one classic definition of research is that it's a systematic approach to producing generalizable knowledge. And I would say that that definition fits so many of our QI activities as well. To my thinking, that's not the distinction. The distinction isn't that it's systematic and generalizable. QI does that. Research does that. To my thinking, the more important distinction is whether an activity risks harming people or violating their rights. So we need to protect people and their rights, and it seems to me that those goals are relevant no matter what we call something. We can call it QI or we can call it research. We still need to protect people and their rights. And At the same time, I don't think we should have even more than just that kind of protection just because we labeled something as research. I would personally call for the elimination of a focus on that distinction. I think it's confusing. Lots of the existing literature attempts to sort of thread the needle and create some clear lines between research and quality improvement, and I don't think any of them has been really successful. Some make some sense at the time, but I largely think the distinction is a false one.
0: Has anyone looked at how patients feel about these situations, whether they would want to be informed if they're being included in research that's unlikely to cause them any harm?
1: That's a really interesting question too, and I'm not up on this literature to a great extent, but one of the things that's interesting is that patients' perceptions of these activities depend considerably on what word you use. So if you call it an experiment, people think differently about it if, than if you call it research or call it a study. And so when patients' perceptions are so sensitive to the subtle differences in the connotation of words, it just means we ought to be very, very careful about how we interpret those perceptions as well. At the same time, I think patient perceptions are going to be critical because we're all stakeholders in this enterprise. And we need to have firm and established trust relationships with all parties. And I think the spirit of voluntariness that has been such an essential part of the research enterprise definitely has its place. In fact, it has a very prominent place.
0: So for IRBs, what's the first step? How can they be encouraged to consider these waivers more seriously? How can we change their thinking about low-risk research?
1: I think there are probably a couple of steps. One of them is to really ask the question of what is the incremental risk that really is imposed on people, either by the intervention that might be planned in a trial or the incremental risk of randomization. I think randomization is autom- it's like a hot-button issue. As soon as someone is suggesting that we're going to randomize people for intervention A versus intervention B, it's as if alarm bells go off. And I think randomization is not the enemy. It seems silly to me to say that it's okay to offer all patients A or all patients B without their consent about the choice. Like one hospital always gives patients A and one hospital always gives patients B. There's no consent process in there. It seems silly to say that that's okay, but it's not okay within a single hospital to randomize them to being offered A or being offered B without their consent. So I think that's the first step is not to see randomization as somehow an enemy or something that requires additional concern. I think a second one is just to take a step back and to recognize the kind of research that gets imposed on us without our consent in everyday life. We're constantly being subjected to involuntary trials outside of healthcare. I mean, every day when I come home, I empty my mailbox and it's stuffed full of credit card offers. I didn't ask for those credit card offers. The marketing companies are using me as a subject to learn what kinds of offers work better. Each one of those letters I get is one arm in a randomized controlled trial. My neighbor is probably getting the same kind of offer, but it might be framed differently. I didn't consent to that. It's a bit of a pain, but there's not an enormous amount of harm except to the environment, all that waste of paper. And there's not much harm to me, but only because I'm not likely to take up a new credit card offer. For some people, actually, those credit card RCTs are potentially quite toxic, right? Certainly, if they encourage people to take on more debt than they can handle or credit card rates, interest rates that are much more than they can handle. So recognizing that kind of background risk and comparing an unconsented trial to improve rates of colorectal cancer screening, I think the colorectal cancer screening trials is likely to be much safer than a trial about different credit card offers, since I think colorectal cancer screening is, for many patients, a good thing, and credit card offers for many people are often a bad thing.
0: So, finally, given all of this, what can investigators themselves do to protect the validity of their research when it's posing only minimal risk to participants?
1: I think that is the burden on investigators, and that is to make sure that the sample that they are studying is representative of the sample to which they want to apply their later results. That's a lesson in trial design that's always been true, and it's no more or less true in these settings than any other. It's just that for many kinds of settings, the selection process of consent doesn't threaten the validity of the study, the generalizability of the study. But in so many studies of behavior, human behavior, whether you take your medications, whether you adhere to a particular treatment, whether you participate in cancer screening, those have such a strong behavioral component are so likely to be influenced by participants' intrinsic motivation that we need to make sure that the selection processes into the trial don't select on the basis of motivation. And consent often does. So I think these issues are far more important for the trials that have a behavioral component than the trials that are mostly physiologic.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ash.